We're so excited to be uh, continuing on with the book of James today. And if you've been away, there's two things you need to do. One is repent for missing church. And the second is get caught up, go back on the YouTube, have a look at the messages that we've been doing as we're working our way through this incredible book. Very quick contextual catch up. James is Jesus's brother. James is a man who before Jesus died and rose again, grew up with Jesus in the same house, yet did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until Jesus revealed himself to James after his resurrection. An amazing thing about Jesus revealing himself to James is that the Bible teaches us that Jesus was revealing himself to many people at once, multitudes of people at a time, except when it came to James, he met up with James one-on-one. You could imagine that the God-man Jesus still had a special connection with his brother who he grew up with every single day of his life. And James goes on to become one of the great pillars in church history and leadership uh, in the early church. And he's writing this epistle to Christians, the first Christians who are under uh, economic and social persecution, that because they've chosen to follow Christ, they are under pressure from all sides, from the Gentiles who hate Jesus, from the Jews who don't think Jesus is the Savior. And therefore, these Christians are living in a society where culture is rejecting them, and economically, they are under extreme financial pressure because they're unable to conduct business with those who are rejecting them. This is the book of James, and the book of James is sort of all-encompassed by this phrase that says, faith works. James, we'll see sometime on down the track, says, you show, you, you show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And what James is trying to get across to these early believers is not that salvation comes by works, but that the proof that you're saved is that you will do good works. Because I'll tell you, the grace of God never enters a man and leaves him the same. The grace of God is not impotent to perform. The grace of God is the divine inspiration of the Spirit of God to help somebody walk in this life like Jesus Christ. If grace hasn't changed the man, then grace probably never saved the man. James is saying the proof is in the pudding. You say you're a Christian, show me. And he's speaking to a group of Christians who are under pressure. We've said it a few times, but when you take an orange and you squeeze it, orange juice should come out, correct? If you squeeze an orange and lemon juice comes out, that would be strange. And in the same way as believers, as Christians, when the pressure comes, when the trials come, because they do come, What's going to come out of us? How are we going to respond when the pressure comes? The first week we looked into understanding James and the context. The second week we looked at this idea that James says, Consider it joy, my brothers, when you go through various many different trials. Consider it joy when life sucks. 
Consider it joy when the pressure around you is coming in. And James is not this sadistic, crazy person who says you should be happy when you're feeling pain. But he's saying there's a greater joy beyond the momentary pain that you're walking through. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, not because we enjoy evil, not because we enjoy pain, but because beyond that moment of pain, we have a joy whose name is Jesus. We look beyond a moment to the hope of glory. Amen? We then looked at the following week. James goes on. He says, if in the midst of these trials, if anyone lacks wisdom, and we did a survey last week, and we said, does anybody think they lack wisdom? And 95% of us put our hands up, and the rest were sinning. Does any of us lack wisdom? He says, simply ask God, who is generous and will give it to you if you ask. But don't be double-minded. Don't be caught up doubting. Don't lean on your own understanding. And he said, ask with faith and you will receive the wisdom of God to endure trials because to endure trials, you need wisdom. And the thing about trials and needing wisdom to endure them is when you go through the trials, you grow in wisdom. You grow in understanding as you walk through challenges. We don't want to pray that God would take us out of a challenge, but we do want to pray that God would get us through the challenge because if you're taken out of a challenge, you miss an opportunity to grow in your faith, in your steadfastness, in your perseverance, which helps us to become complete, mature believers. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials of many kinds, knowing that your steadfastness will complete you, will mature you. And if any of you lacks wisdom, simply ask God and he will give you wisdom. Wisdom being the capacity of our mind to view life and circumstance from God's perspective rather than man's perspective, amen? Which leads us to today in James chapter one, verse nine. Let's read it together. James chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I want to tell you a quick story about a man named Papa Rob. Papa Rob was an incredible man, and uh, I knew him personally. In fact, he was my grandfather. And Papa Rob was one of the, you ever seen the movie Big Fish, anyone? About the grandpa who tells these elaborate stories and the children and the grandchildren are like bought in, but also like, is it true? And there's this uncertainty. That's my grandfather. I have genuine memories of him telling me stories how he was deep sea diving and an octopus grabbed him. And to escape this octopus, he pulled the knife out of his, off his ankle and he cut the tentacles off while underwater scuba diving and escaped the treachery of this beast. 
And I just still, to this day, I don't know if that's true or not. Because it's possible. I mean, it could have been a squid just on his ankle. He didn't give me the fine details. He just said he was deep sea diving. Something grabbed him and he had to cut to get, I mean, who knows? But this is my grandfather who tells stories how him and a friend after the war would got on a scooter and trekked all across Europe through many different nations and had all these experiences. He used to tell these wonderful stories of my grandmother and uh, how they, when they lived in the Fiji Islands that there was once this man who was demon-possessed and he was about six foot four and was raging with anger and was running towards my grandma to take her out. And the moment she began praying and as this man ran towards her, she just began praying and he hit an invisible wall. And there he stood and he couldn't get past this, this invisible wall raging but couldn't get to my grandmother. He tells another story how my grandmother, they were in a village and a man had lost his ear. And my grandmother prayed for him and his ear grew back. I mean, these are the stories of my, throughout all these different things. But my grandpa, Papa Rob, was an amazing man. And for a lot of his life, he was an extremely wealthy, yet ungodly man. He lived in South Africa, was very successful businessman. So at one point of his life, he owned hotels and restaurants, yet was extremely ungodly. Then in a portion of his life, he was a wealthy man and a godly man. And then he became a very poor man, yet became an extremely godly man. He was my greatest cheerleader. Is is a cheerleader still a boy? What do you call a boy who's a cheerleader? Right? I won't say what I was going to say. But he, was, he, he used to always encourage me in my inappropriate jokes. No, he didn't. But he really, he appreciated how God used me. He was always encouraging me. He loved the Word of God. He loved talking about Jesus in the Bible. Yet at this point of his life, he was extremely poor because through a series of trials or bad investments or betrayal, He lost everything that he had in one big deal. He took everything that he had left and he threw it into this one basket and the deal went bad and he got ripped off and he ended up with nothing. He went from living a life of luxury with servants in mansions to living his end of his days at an old age home on a pension. But one thing my grandfather always used to tell me which I still say, I've maybe said it to you, and I still think about all the time. He said this phrase, he said, I'd ask him, hey, Papa, how you doing? I'd go visit him up on the hill as he'd sit there and he'd say, grandson, that's what he used to call me, grandson. He said, every day is a good day. Some are just better than others. Every day is a good day. Some are just better than others. And now we could look at that as a, a potential place of naivety, to, to be naive and pretend that nothing's going bad around. But it's not what he was saying. In fact, I believe it was a really brilliant perspective, a lesson to understand this simple but profound truth that if you have breath in your lungs, food in your mouth, the roof over your head and someone who loves you, 
then you really are a blessed person. A perspective that allows us to consider it joy when we're going through various trials. Last week, my nephew, some of you have met Pastor Aaron and Becky from our Northern Colorado church. And, but last week, my, my nephew, he's living in Australia, he was staying with my grandfather and he walked into my grandfather's apartment to find him hunched over on the bed, not moving. He had suffered a severe heart attack. And I got a message from my mother saying, hey, Joel, your papa has had a heart attack. He's in hospital. And here's a phone number if you want to call him. So I immediately took the phone number. I called him. I got the nurse who was at the top desk. He was still in the ICU. And so they had to transfer the phone down there. And somehow I got to speak to my grandfather as he was lying in the the ICU, and we chatted for a minute, and I asked him, what's going on? To which he replied, grandson, it's very strange. He said, I'm lying here in the hospital, and my brain is working, my body feels normal, except for the fact that there's a sharp pain in my chest. I can think, I can understand. Everything's working fine, except they're telling me that I have hours to live, maybe days, if not at maximum a week. He said, it's a really strange feeling. And so obviously a little bit overwhelmed on the phone, I processed for a second and I asked him, how do you feel? I said, are you worried? Are you anxious? Like, what do you feel? And he said this statement to me, which I think was so amazing. He said, Joeli, which is another name he used to call me. In Fiji, that's what, how they would say my name, Joeli. I had a great uncle who used to call me Joe, jo, uh, Smelly Joeli, who sucks on his belly. You know, when you're nine, that hurts. And he was brutal. Who's thankful for brutal uncles? I think I'm thankful. I'm not sure. Yeah, either that or a miserable man. Thanks, Uncle Brett, if you're watching. You've made me potentially a better man. But he said, Joeli, I've lived a full life. I have a great family, and I know where I'm going. And he said, so I'm at peace. And essentially, what he was saying to me is, Joel, every day is a good day. Some are just better than others. Today is not one of those better days, but tomorrow is going to be the best day because he knows where he's going. There it was in real time. He was able to consider the present trial joy because he had his eternal hope in Jesus. He's lying on his deathbed knowing he's about to pass from this life to the next, knowing that he won't see his earthly family again. And when I asked him, how do you feel? He said, son, I feel at peace because I've lived a full life. I've got a great family. But the reality is he knew where he was going. His confidence was not in the 
things of the world. You can have a full life and you can have a good family. You can have a lot of things. But if you don't know where you're going, to lie on your deathbed is not a joyous occasion. This kind of perspective is reserved for Jesus' followers. We're the only people who have hope beyond this life. The Bible tells us to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ. To live for us is to live like Christ. There's a better life for us waiting, eternal life with God forever. That's the gain. That's the hope, the blessed hope that we look forward to so we can look beyond this momentary life, a blink in the eye of eternity to our joyous hope that's in Jesus. I got to pray with him on the phone and he hung up the phone and 12 hours later he passed on to heaven. The good news was I, when I spoke to him, he was in the ICU ward. They were able to get him out of that ward and my family told me my mom was able she was out of town she got to fly in my little brother sent me a message and he said papa passed away doing what he loved to do the most sitting around with his family laughing having a good time yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for my god is with me his rod and his staff they comfort me he prepareth for me a table in the presence of death, in the presence of my enemy. Not because of what he had tangibly, but because of what he had eternally. My grandpa at his richest was bankrupt spiritually. And in his poorest days, he was his richest spirit. You see, today the big idea and the very simple assignment I have is that I, I think of four things that are no respecter of persons. That means these four things don't care about people's wealth, people's position, your status, your popularity, skin color, or social standing. These four things don't look on the outside, or they don't care. Number one is God. He's no respecter of persons. Romans 2.11 says, For God shows no partiality, no favoritism. He gives everybody equal and all opportunity to come to Him. So God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how great you think you are or how great you are. God is not a respecter of your status, your position, your popularity, your skin color, your social standing, your bank account, your mansion, your, your, your car that you sleep in. He doesn't care. If you are sleeping in a car, please come see us. We would love to help you. Serious. If you're at that position of your life, we'd love to be able to help you. So number one is God. It's no respecter of persons. Number two is Satan. He doesn't care. 
If poverty is going to destroy your life, watch him come at you. If riches are going to destroy your life, watch him fill up your bank account. If trials are going to break you, he's going to bring the thunder. In, in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is no respecter of persons. doesn't care about your status, your bank account. He cares about destroying your life. The third one is death. Death is no respecter of persons. As we step on into the modern age, money might help you, is it elongate? Prolong, thank you, James. Prolong your life. But it won't keep you alive. Death is no respecter of persons. We are all assigned to die once. For those that don't follow Jesus, you will die unto eternal torment. For those that follow Jesus, we get to live again with Christ forever. We die so we can live, but death is no respecter of persons. And the fourth one is trials, challenges, persecutions, tests, temptations. They don't care who you are. Ecclesiastes in chapter 9 verse 11 puts it very morbidly like this. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. The thing about trials, and as we look at James, this whole first section is in context through us going through trials. And trials are no respecter of persons. Everything that can happen to anyone can happen to a Christian. Anything. And we've been a little bit falsely taught that as long as we just say faithful statements, nothing will happen to us. But it's a dangerous reality to think empty statements of faith will keep you. Jesus, the faithful one, Jesus, the one in whom we put our faith, went through many trials, being hated, being rejected, being beaten, being persecuted, and ultimately being killed. I'm not saying that God's not our protector and that we are over his, in his watchful eye, but I'm saying that trials are no respecter of anyone. The rich, the poor, the weak, the strong, the famous, the forgotten, God doesn't care, Satan doesn't care, death doesn't care, and trials, they want everybody. God wants everybody, Satan wants everybody, 
Death will take everybody and trials will come for everybody. Who's excited? Maybe the first one. God wants you. And if God wants you, who can stand against you? If God be for you, choose Him. Then Satan can come at you all he wants. Then death can come and you can consider it joy. Then trials can come and you say, I laugh in the face of danger like old, what's his name? Simba. Been watching a lot of Lion King since grandparents have been in town. But it's the reality. You choose God. You put your hope in Jesus. Then the other three non-respecters can go to hell. The big idea is that your wealth, your bank account, your status, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We know, you ever heard someone say money doesn't make you happier? It's true. It does make things easier. Anybody want a nice boat? Rich people get boats. Regular people borrow boats. It doesn't make you happier, but you get to do a lot of extra things. You ever wanted to go skiing in the mountains in Colorado? Rich people get to do that. People like me, when it gets snowy in my little slope backyard, you get a little thing and you slide down and pretend. But the reality is, James is saying, let the low person, the humble, he's speaking of poor people, glory boast in his exaltation. And for the rich, let them glory and boast in their humiliation. And what I want us to look at before we close out today is this two paradoxical statements that James makes. And a paradox is defined as an exceedingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explains, explained may prove to be true. A paradox is a statement that on the surface seems like a silly thing to say or an untrue thing to say, but yet when investigated, proves to be true. James says here in James 1 verses 9, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, or some translations say, let him boast in his high place. James is saying the low is high. James is saying God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, James is speaking to believers who the majority are under extreme financial pressure, and persecution. And we see James saying, hey, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He's saying, you may not have a lot of stuff, so don't glory in your lack, but glory that you are seated with me in heavenly places. You see, I've done a lot of work in third world nations. And when you're in the third world nations, you see people come far and wide to hear about Jesus. 
They, they, they walk for hours. We've done church services in the bush of Kenya where they ask us to get there at nine for the service to start at one because they just keep singing music for hours until everybody arrives, then they have church. There's a hunger, there's a desperation for that which gives people life when their material life is not what rules them. People say, do you find you see more miracles and signs and wonders happen when you're in third world nations? And the answer is yes. Because those who have nothing come to the one who has everything with open hearts, without doubting, saying, I have nothing. The Word of God says, you'll give me everything, so bring it on. It's a simple, unadulterated faith that allows the low to come to Him without barrier to receive Him. And it's challenging. Don't get me wrong. We understand if you live in a place of poverty like they do in third world nations, or if you live in this nation and money is a huge pressure and stress for you, there are challenges that come from having not a lot of money. Some of us or some people find it hard to put food on the table. That's a challenge that you get to trust God for. One of the biggest trials or challenges people who don't have a lot have is this word called covetousness. Often we'll covet what somebody has when we don't have. And that's not a good thing. So people who don't have a lot, there are trials and challenges depending on your wealth level that you have to walk through. Because James isn't giving us you become a wealthy person in this category when you hit this annual income. And you're poor when you have this income. Because depending on the scalability of where you're at in your life, we all face different challenges based on our different financial circumstances. But what James is saying is those of you in a lowly place, don't boast in your lack Boast in your high place, seated with God the Father, that you don't have to have the challenges that those who have a lot of money have, but you can come to me and you can rely on me. How much easier is it to not rely on your own wisdom, your own understanding when you don't have a lot and you say, God, I need you. He's saying, boast in this ability that you can come to me. It's not that there's not challenges, but he's saying, Boast in your exaltation that you are sitting with me in heavenly places. Amen. The second one in James 1.10, he says in 1.9, let the lowly boast in his exaltation or in his high place. And then in verse 10, he says, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. James 1.11 says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is saying to the poor man, Rejoice in me. Boast in your high place. And he says unto the rich man, Boast in your humiliation. 
This can be looked at in two different ways. Some commentators will suggest that when he's talking to the rich, here he's talking to the non-believer. Because the way he uses the word rich, he never addresses a rich, a wealthy Christian with this word. And so he's saying in one foot to the poor, because it would have been predominantly the Christians who are under economical persecution, glory that you're seated with me, that you're saved, you're born again, you're a new creation. And to the rich, all you can celebrate in is your humiliation because the stuff that you have is not going to get you anywhere. Some commentators would say that. The other ones would suggest that this is a challenge to the very few wealthy people that were in this economical pressure, saying don't boast in the things that you have, but find yourself in a lowly place in your humiliation so that you can be exalted. Because if the man in the lowly place must not lean on his own understanding, must not rely on the things that he doesn't have, therefore he can rely on God, the greatest trial for a wealthy man is to not lean on what he has, to not find his trust in riches, to not find his wisdom in what he's been able to produce in and of himself, but boast in your humiliation that those who desire to save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for his sake, they will find it. James is not having having a go at rich people. He's not taking this position that says, if you're wealthy, you can't be a Christian. Because who knows, in an economical world, we need wealthy believers to help fund the mission to reach the world. Amen? James is not saying, if you're wealthy, forget about it. But he's presenting a challenge and an opportunity to those who are blessed and flourishing in the area of finances, that there's a great responsibility on your shoulders to not boast in your own strength, in your own wisdom, and in your own stuff, but to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and see what He will have you do with that which He's allowed you to have in the first place. You ever heard the story of the rich young ruler? I'll read it in Mark chapter 10, verses 17. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And and the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus looked at him lovingly and said, there's one thing that you lack. He said, take everything that you have, sell it and give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And he said, come and follow me. Verse 22, it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great 
possessions. Verse 23 says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 26, it says, They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. James is not attacking the rich people, those who are flourishing. He's challenging them, probably hearing the story of the rich young ruler. You see, the rich young ruler came to Jesus with a desire to inherit eternal life. And Jesus presented to him a few things that he would have had to do under the law to receive eternal life. And he said, I've done those things. And then Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. I don't believe Jesus desires, unless he does ask you clearly, to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. What he desires is that you would follow him. But if there's something in the way, it's better to get it out of the way. For this man, for a rich man, for a wealthy person, and to be honest, I would consider 95% of us to be in this wealthy category. Don't just think about those who have the squillions of dollars, because compared to some, we're very wealthy. We are all, almost all of us in a place to look after ourselves. And Jesus is saying to this man, he says, sell everything you have. Why? Because you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and the pleasures of this world. And so if the pleasures of this world, if the assets you have acquired, if the wealth you've been able to gain, if the property that you own and the car that you drive and the exotic vacations that you get to have are a wedge between you and following Jesus, friend, it is better to pluck your eye out. It is better to chop off your hand because if you desire to save your life, you will lose it. It says that the man could not do what Jesus had asked, and therefore he turned away and went away sorrowful. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's very difficult for someone who has everything to rely on me like they have nothing. And the reality is, you're standing on earth your position on earth, your prosperity in earth does not make you desirable in the eyes of God. 
What makes you desirable in the eyes of God is that you're his child. What you do is not where your value comes from. What you have is not what makes you important. What the world looks at as successful, Jesus is over here and would consider it amoral. He's saying, I just don't want it to get in the way of me. And if it's going to get in the way of me, then it's very difficult for you to come to me. They said, is it, so how can anyone be saved? And he says, it's impossible. Except for with me, all things are possible. The challenge today is that if you're in a lowly position, to consider it joy. If you're under the trial of poverty and lack, consider it joy. Boast that you're seated with him in heavenly places and this life is but a blip on the radar for eternity with God forever. Don't give in to covetousness. It's not an issue to desire more, but is your heart in such a place where you're bitter and resentful towards those that have more than you? Or are you celebratory and thankful that God has blessed them in that way? The challenge for those in a lowly place is to rejoice in the high place with God. And the challenge for those who are in a wealthy and a high place is to humble yourself. Ask yourself the question, if Jesus asked me to give away everything, take the local church out of it for a minute so you don't think I'm trying to manipulate rich people into giving to this church. If God asked you to sell all you have and give it, to someone else, if Jesus genuinely asked you, he said, do that son because it's in the way. Do that daughter because I want you and you want me, but there's a wedge in the middle and I want to get the wedge out so you can come to me and I'll give you true life. He's saying, are you willing? Are you willing? And it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I obviously study and getting prepared. Think to myself, I'm not super wealthy, but I'm definitely not very poor. And if God asked me to give it all away, am I willing to endure that trial? Consider it joy that I might be bankrupt for His name's sake? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And He'll give it to you. The greatest challenge to someone who has nothing is that they'll covet everything. I mean, they'll covet those who have everything. The greatest challenge for those who have everything is that their everything become their vessel of condemnation. The goal is Jesus. The trial, the season, the test, whatever it is, it's in between you and him. In James 1.12, which we'll look at more next week, he says, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man or the woman who endures whatever the trials might be. Because life isn't always going to be smooth sailing, 
But those who get to the other side are those who endure through thick or thin, through hell or high water. Friends, don't just look on the outward appearance of your social standing or your financial position. Because as James tells us, it can be gone in an instant. Because death is no respecter of persons. Trials are no respecter of persons. Satan is no respecter of persons. And God is no respecter of persons. If God needs to humble us in order to get to us, friends, He will humble us. And if He needs to exalt us because we've been humbled, He will exalt us. But our challenge is, do we serve God or money? Because money and the lack thereof can be your master. And money and the abundance of, it can be your master. So who do you serve? God or money? And if you serve God, then wherever you land in the money category, consider it joy. Be wise, be faithful to trust Him with everything. Let us not be the kind of people that just trust God with our eternal destination, but with our daily living. Amen? Can we thank Jesus for the Word of God?